You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 225. I got to hang out with one of my dear friends, Lori Goodrich. She is an occupational therapist and truly transformed how I live my life, how I show up as a parent, how I show up as a teacher. She was so influential in my journey and continues to be. We're going to dive into the sensory systems, what they are. We hear that word sensory a lot, but what does that even mean? And spoiler alert, it's how we function in the world. It is the foundation for how we show up, for how we feel, for how we process emotions, for everything. This episode is pure gold, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Before we dive in, I wanted to let you know that we have our Seed Teacher Summit, our first ever virtual summit. It is free April 10th to April 12th. We have 18 workshops for professional development for early childhood educators. Head on over to seedandso.org slash summit to sign up right now for free. Don't miss out on these incredible workshops from Brilliant Minds and Early Ed. 18 different workshops coming at you www.seedandso.org slash summit. All right, folks, let's dive in. Hey there, I'm Alyssa Blass Campbell. I'm a mom with a master's degree in early childhood education and co-creator of the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. I'm here to walk alongside you through the messy, vulnerable parts of being humans raising other humans with deep thoughts and actionable tips. Let's dive in together. I'm so excited for today's episode. In my journey, there have been so many people I've learned from. Parents, other teachers, pediatricians, directors, SLPs, this list goes on. But the woman I get to chat with today opened my eyes to a whole new way of looking at the tiny humans. Lori is an occupational therapist and is one of the first people I turn to when I need to talk through developmental and sensory questions. She's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to kiddos. Lori, thank you so much for hanging out with me today and letting me pick your brain. Why don't you start the listeners off with a little bit about yourself and what led you to where you are today? Thanks for the lovely intro, Alyssa. Um, As as Alyssa mentioned, I'm an OT. Um, I've been doing the work that I've been doing for about 15 years. And what brought me to doing this kind of work is a a really strong interest in science and also helping people. And I feel like OT kind of brings those things together. Um, And as my career has evolved, I realized how much I like to figure out the why of things. And that really speaks to me of what OTs do is figuring out, looking at something and figuring out why is that happening? Um, And I think that's why Alyssa and I work so well together because I think we have the same mindset. Um, My background in in training is in sensory integration and also in neurodevelopmental techniques and oral motor therapy. So those are sort of my specific training areas that I've done extra work in after school. Awesome. That's Uh, me. Can you explain to me just like what an OT does? this like mystery question I feel like even teachers in the field were like is this an OT question right I get that a lot and I feel like every OT has probably practiced their sort of elevator speech of (laughs) OT what's that and then when you say you work with children I've actually had people argue with me about what the word occupation means Um, Mm. because most of us as adults think occupation is our jobs it's the place we go to to do our job, whether we're an accountant or a teacher or a lawyer. Um, so I usually start with sort of letting them know um, 
what occupation actually means. And what an occupation is in sort of layman's terms is it's all the stuff you want to be able to do during the day to interact mm-hmm. with other people and the community um, to kind of get what you need to do out of life. Um, for us, part of that is our jobs. Um, but for a child, it's much different in terms of what are their occupations, what they have to be able to do during the day. It could be I'm a student. It could be I'm a friend. It could be I, I'm learning to explore um, my environment. It could be a lot of different things. As kids get older, it becomes self-help skills and learning and being a student. Uh, but that word occupation seems to kind of get in the, the way for a lot of people. Um what OT's background is, is we go to school and learn quite a bit about a wide range of things, including development through the lifespan, including neuro and anatomy, um, and a lot of work about sort of activity analysis, which is like breaking down a task. So our, my background is, an, I actually am trained to work with the entire lifespan um, that all OTs are, and usually people end up specializing in different areas. So OTs are healthcare practitioners that are promoting um, engagement in these occupations and figuring out kind of how to do so using different treatment approaches. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You guys are okay. amazing. You do like you're jack of all trades here. Yeah, I <laughs> would I would agree. Question, I turn. <laughs> you're right, and because of that, I think the question um, of I get a lot of is this an OT thing? <laughs> and that could be. Yeah, I feel like I totally yeah. that at you a lot. <laughs> Right, and it does come up a lot, and I think even within the healthcare world, um, there's confusion around what OTs do, and I think the confusion is is because we can work in a lot of different populations and settings. So I work primarily in the pediatric setting, although you work with some adolescents and adults. Um, but if you if you had a parent or a sibling that was had an injury and was in a rehab hospital, they have OTs there too. They just do something completely different because it's a different approach to. Um, um, what's what the challenge is and how to promote it. So that someone that had a hip replacement, for example, we're obviously not going to do the same things with them than we do with the child that's learning how to crawl. Yeah. Um, so that it's that just very sense. different. Yeah, I think most people have even have heard the term, but I think because there's OTs that do different things, it can make it a little bit tricky. Yeah, for sure. And I guess, like, when I met you, I didn't realize how much everything I was doing really came back to what you were doing and how closely they were linked. Um, So right now I work in an infant toddler classroom and I kind of want you to chat about what that looks like in an infant toddler world. Like what is your role? What are you looking for when you come in the classroom? Um, Excellent question. Um, Usually what happens is I'm either coming in just to kind of eyeball kids or teachers sort of flagged up sort of, "Mm, I'm kind of wondering about this. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, OTs are the like, why is this happening, people? So I'm going to kind of play detective and see if I can figure out what are some components that might be creating that situation. Um, some of the things that I would specifically look at are um, looking at how they're processing sensory information um, and maybe what they're sort of how they're responding to different inputs in those things. So I'm just going to I'm going to talk about sensory just for a minute because I feel like this terminology gets kind of tossed around and maybe it's not 100% clear to people. Um, yes, please. So sen- sensory processing, I guarantee everyone's doing it right now. <laughs> I know my own house, I have a air purifier going. There's a little bit of a hum. My body automatically says, not important, don't pay attention to it. So sensory processing helps us filter out extra information. 
it also helps us understand sort of the basis of who we are as a person in space. So right now, I'm actually I'm actually kind of sitting on a nice squishy couch, uh, and my body just adapts and forms to the position of the couch because it understands the properties of the touch system and where I have to put one hip and the other hip to kind of get myself comfortable. And that's understanding the qualities of the input, which is really important for, it can be important for sitting in a couch. It can also be really important for understanding my body to be able to go out there and explore and develop motor skills. Um, so most people are more familiar with that filtering piece, which is important for things like attention and comfort with experiences like maybe diaper changing um, and clothing. And then that understanding qualities is important more for how do I go out there and explore the world? How do I develop motor skills? Uh, and those kind of things. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes so much sense. Okay. <laughs> I feel so like not- when I call you into my classroom, I'm often like, hey, there's this thing going on, and right. I'm trying to figure out the why. Can you bring your brilliant brain in here right. and help me figure out the why as well? Right. Um, and, so- and a lot of times, I feel like one piece of development feeds into the other piece. Um, so when I'm seeing like a language delay in a kid, Sometimes I've learned from you and uh, chatting with you that it could really come back to sensory processing, that if there's so much going on and they can't focus on me uh, and the sign language that we're bringing in or the conversation we're having, that they can't pick up that language. Can you kind of speak to that in better terms than I just threw at you? Right. I mean, I, I look at sensory processing if you're thinking about a pyramid. It's like the one of the cornerstones of pretty much everything you do during your life. And most of us just kind of just do it automatically and easily, which is how it's supposed to work. Um, We do see kids have a wide range of challenges that can come off of sensory processing. I think one of the cool parts of my job, but also one of the challenging things, is it can affect a lot of things, including this language piece that you're talking about, Alyssa. Um, When I think of the language piece, some of the core things that I think of are those kids that aren't filtering, like we were talking about earlier, and also are working just harder to understand their body, right? So I'm, yeah, I could, I could be talking to you, walking around my house, cooking, <laughs> doing all those things at the same time, and then and look, young children don't necessarily do that, but that idea of they're working so hard in one arena that they can't necessarily access that language piece, mm-hmm. or or even maybe even be interested in engagement in the world because they're so overstimulated or they're just working incredibly hard um, to figure out how their, how their bodies are working. And part of that, the tricky thing here is part of that, there's some, lots of kids that are, have typical development experience that, right? I'm sure you've seen kids mm-hmm. that like, as their motor skills are going up, their language kind of goes down. Um, the thing that we see with children that are experiencing sensory processing issues is they can't always access that that sort of at all. Like the developmental trajectory is not happening across the different areas. Yeah. So um, it's not just, a, oh, just for a little while, why that big motor leap was happening, their language kind of goes down a little bit. It's sort of a more like permeating challenge. Um, and then when kids get older, um, there's a speech therapist that I work with that we're, I feel like we're really refining this sort of concept. But for kids that have, planning issues, so they don't really understand how to explore and approach tasks. As they get older, you'll see a kid with planning issues sometimes talk like, I want to do that, or let's do, they don't, they can't identify an action or what the toy even is called, because they haven't Mm -hmm. built up that repertoire of what their experiences are. Does that make sense? So interesting. Yeah, so what do you, yes, what do you do then, right? Like, if you see this kid who is having a hard time filtering, 
Like, what does your work look like with them? So when we do, um, if I was doing, there's a couple of different ways to think about it. Um, so I do in my clinic that I work at, we do direct intervention, which means we're using, we're doing a sensory integration approach to intervention, which means you're using sort of targeted enhanced sensory input to help rewire the central nervous system to be less responsive. So there's a couple different sensory inputs that most of us can relate to because it works for most people. Deep touch pressure, um, which is like pressure to your skin. It's why like a massage feels so good. Um, proprioception, which is input to your muscles and joints. I am not a runner, but I know runners really <laughs> like proprioception. <laughs> I was actually getting my uh, my uh, fix of this this morning cleaning my house as I was getting ready to kind of shift gears. Um, so we do get a lot of those things normally during our regular experiences. That the children that we work with just don't get that from their everyday experiences to an F degree. So we're going to use it to kind of use enhanced sensory inputs to organize that nervous system to calm it down so they're not in that sort of constant, I'm overstimulated state. Does that make sense? And yeah, it does. So right. if you are working with them, say, on a weekly basis, mm-hmm. does their body then learn how to do that on its own? It does. It really, the work we do rewires the central nervous system, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's changing That's things. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And then the other thing that I'm sure you know from working with me is we do a lot of, we don't want to be like, oh, there's all these challenges. Sorry, you're going to have to wait a really long time for intervention to work. We want to think of how do we help a family or a teacher in the moment and how to support um, the child so that they can function to the best of their ability. And sometimes that's providing um, opportunities for regular sensory input during the day, if you've ever heard the term sensory diet. Um, if we think yeah. of we need nutrients for our body for, like, energy, we need ongoing sensory input to kind of keep our bodies in that regulated state. And a lot of kids with sensory processing issues just need more uh, and more frequently. So working with things like doing squishes with pillows or having some muscle opportunities. I always see there's a little boy that's always carrying things up and down the stairs. <laughs> um, so that idea of can, can he get enough input to get his body to be more focused so they can access the curriculum in the classroom. He's a little bit older than the kids that you see. Uh-huh. And, and then helping parents and teachers understand, okay, that environment or the situation really doesn't work. We need to accommodate and change the situation because right now there's not a sensory diet by itself isn't necessarily going to like remediate everything. It's just going to help kind of in the interim. Um, yeah. How do we, how do we think about, Oh, that person doesn't really do well when there's a lot of people around them. So maybe they wait a little bit longer or they go first to go outside. So it's not them having to be in the bustle of getting changed with other kids when they're helping under snowsuits and things. Absolutely. I feel like I use a lot of like your tips and tricks um, around sleep. Like when we're getting ready for sleep, making sure that our tiny humans have like their sensory diet occurs before then, right? So um, like before we even eat lunch, because sleep comes after lunch for us, we have Rhodey, which you introduced to us and is a game changer. (laughs) Uh, We brought it into our room and, you know, we have a yoga ball and things that we can bounce the kids on. But the nice thing about Rhodey is that even my old infant uh, can climb on it by themselves and ride. And we we see such different kids when they get off and they're able to engage in a different way. And we really started using it as a part of our routine right before lunch. And so they would do roadie and then come to lunch and then 
go down for a nap. And it was so much easier to put these kiddos down for sleep, probably because they were more regulated. Right. I think you're right about that. Yeah, and that's a really really good, simple strategy, right? It's an accessible toy. It's not a big routine. It's a small change that you can make and it can have a really big um, outcome change for you and then potentially for, um, if that works at school, that could possibly work at home too if sleep is tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I guess I'd like to talk about a couple more like tips and tricks like that, like the roadie or things that uh, if our kids are having a hard time engaging, what are some things that we can provide for them that uh, can help build those tools for them, at least in the meantime? I know you mentioned like squishes with pillows, if you want to kind of expand on what that might mean. Sure, sure. So different, um, I'm going to speak very generally. Obviously, I haven't met every child and every person that's listening. Um, so these are very general ideas that maybe just some concepts to think about. One is I always just think promoting general like sensory input. A lot of active play is good for anybody, whether you have a sensory processing challenge or not. It's what we all grew up with um, running around in the backyard and those things. So I think just general activity level is, is great to promote for kids. Um, but if someone's having maybe some suspected sensory processing challenges, um, there's different things you can do for different challenge, different areas. So the sensory modulation piece, which is what Alyssa was referring to as sleep, that's our ability to, that, can I focus, can I attend, can my arousal level and it's shift for necessary tasks. So, for example, going to sleep or I was outside on the playground and now I'm coming in to have lunch. So can your arousal level shift? Those are some things that you might see that might be suggestive of challenges. There's some really basic things that really work well for a lot of, People, tiny humans and big humans. <laughs> um, so that deep touch pressure is something that um, that can be really helpful. And what I mean by deep touch pressure is like firm, even pressure to the skin. Uh, and you can get that different ways. You can get it through um, physical contact as in like skin on skin. So a, a parent or a teacher massaging a child. Um, some other really great ways to get it, yoga balls, which are like pretty commonplace these days out in people's homes. Um, or big like couch cushions, like the ones that I'm sitting on, are nice and they're nice. So if you use pressure on a child's body, so like put them between two couch cushions and put them under a yoga ball and and squish them with your hands, you're going to get that deep touch pressure. And that's a really calming, inhibitory kind of input. Could be good to add before sitting down at the table. If sitting at the table is hard, before sleeping. Um, for a lot of kids um, in schools, if they have a hard time shifting between like active play and quiet play, those can be really easy things to add in. Um, um, spandex sheets and like um, snuggling can be good. So wrapping a child in a blanket and it could be just sitting with mom or a parent or a teacher. Um, those can be opportunities that can provide that input and also provide a nice connection point during the day, I think, as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then for these, the kids that are like having a hard time understanding where their bodies are, so some things that you might see with this are sometimes it's like motor skills are harder, so maybe they're not meeting, meeting milestones quite yet, or you see them just working harder maturically to figure things out, like they don't approach things, they're not exactly sure, they might be really clumsy. Um, those are some things that you might see. I think with younger kids, you often would see, um, like the kids that you're working with, um, them... The, the, motor, the motor skills and quality aren't necessarily where we would expect them to be. Um, and then often their play skills are not exploring things in the way that you'd expect them to. Those can be signs that they're not quite understanding kind of where their body is in space. 
Yeah, we see uh, sometimes kids who have a hard time initiating play. So even right. if I like put paint on a paper, they might not come over to the table, even if they do want to play. If we help them over to the table, they might stay there for a while, but they don't know how right. to kind of initiate that play. Right. Um, and also with conflict, if somebody comes up and takes their toy, they may be mad, but they don't know how to communicate to get it back. Um, right. how to like engage in that interaction in a right. way that other kids might even just like hit or yell. Uh, our kiddos who have these sensory challenges will sometimes just stare at the kid who kind of took the toy and not know where to go next. Right. Um, which I didn't realize this is all stuff that like you kind of opened my eyes to. And now we know how to better support them and kind of help them learn to stick up for themselves in these situations and advocate right. for themselves. Uh, it's just it's just so interesting how connected it is. Um, right. Yeah, I, I agree. And then you think of what that gives you access to, right? Sort of social participation and tr- just trying, exploring the world and trying things. Yeah. Right. I mean, so um, and that's that. Those challenges can come from a couple of different areas, from an OT sort of end. One is we we look at that. Remember how we were talking about like understanding the qualities of input. Uh-huh. Uh, you have sort of three basic systems, two of them most people have never heard of, so I'll try to be really simple here. So you have, everyone knows about things like hearing and um, and vision, and those are really important senses also, but we have these three basic systems that let us know where our body is in space. It makes us feel safe and able to go out there and be like, I can do this. I can mm-hmm. climb up on that structure. I can go be in that group of friends. Um, I can try different things. So if your touch system which is, um, I think that's pretty familiar, right? It's like, I always think of, the classic example I give as an adult for this is, if you put your hand in your in your pocket or your purse, you would understand like a quarter versus a paper clip. Mm-hmm. So that touch awareness is really important for understanding the qualities of how you're interfacing with um, other objects and things in your environment. And it gives you a sense of like, sense of self. I have a map of where my body is. I know where I end and the world begins. Um, and then, Proprioception is just like a terrible word. It's pretty much just ignore that word. It's That's like receptors in your muscles and joints that say, I am here. So I can do things like walk up the stairs without looking and touch my nose. I can touch, I can close my eyes and touch my nose. I know where I am in relation to my other body parts. Um, and I'm just going to, I'm giving a quick intro because it's going to give a clue into what the activities might be for this. So don't yeah. mind my, my little nerdy sensory comment. And then the third one is your vestibular system, which some people are familiar with. It's pretty much your movement system. So those three systems work together for us really to understand our bodies of I am here and I know where I am and I can move through the environment to do things. And that could be crawling. That could be I can put on my own pants. It could be I can negotiate through that group of kids on the playground. It could be a lot of things. Um, so when I think of the kids that don't understand where their bodies are in space, I'm thinking of activities and those three systems that are going to help promote them understanding where their bodies are so that they can access exploring and doing whatever capacity feels meaningful to them. So the activities we just talked about that were the deep touch pressure ones um, from the previous um, discussion would also apply here. Also doing things like the sensory bins that you see in the in classrooms, those are really great. Um, I always think as much body parts as possible. If you're at home doing those things, um, doing water play and having like things like paintbrushes that kids can like brush on their bodies on 
on, on their skin is a great way of promoting that tactile awareness. Um, proprioception is just active play, so it could be rough and tumble stuff. Um, it can be more opportunities for things like climbing, um, those kind of activities. Um, and then vestibular is movement, so the most common one is swings, but also when kids are little, you can like pick them up and dip them in different directions. Um, Brody is a good example of um, the muscle work, which is the proprioception and um, vestibular together. So th there's different activities. I always think when I'm thinking of kids broadly, I'm thinking, are they getting those general inputs um, enough and then following their lead with what feels comfortable? So if a kid really doesn't like spinning, it's not me spinning, spinning, spinning them. It's, oh, that's actually not comfortable. I'm going to follow their lead with what feels safe for them. I am loving ready-to-eat meals in this season of life. Things are really busy over here with a toddler and a newborn, and I don't always want to be focusing on meal planning and ordering groceries. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are chef-crafted and dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. There's zero prep and zero mess. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup involved. And holy moly, do I need that right now. I also love that I can order as much or as little as I need by choosing my meals every week, and I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, restaurant-quality meals with no cooking required, and there are more than 60 add-ons, like pancakes and smoothies, to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Head to factormeals.com slash village50 and use code village50 to get 50% off. That's code village50 at factormeals.com slash village50 to get 50% off. With spring on the horizon, but not quite here yet in Vermont, I've been looking for simple ways to give my body the energy boost it needs and keep up with healthy habits, especially on those tired mornings when I'm just feeling drained. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel more energized and ready to take on the day. It's a morning ritual that gives me peace of mind and then I'm getting comprehensive nutrition that supports my immune system and keeps me going all day. As a parent of two amazing kids, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so that I can continue to show up for the moments that matter. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm jazzed to welcome them as a new sponsor. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and 5 free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com village. That's drinkag1.com village. Check it out. Have 
have you have you been like scrolling the internet and there's all these like tools for calming your child and how to regulate and whatever and you try them and your child just gets amped up or that doesn't work or you find yourself in these cycles where it's like epic meltdown try to come back from it and you just feel like you're putting out fires all day long if this is you you aren't alone and we collaborated with an occupational therapist to create our sensory profile quiz this is going to help you learn about what helps your child regulate what's happening in their unique nervous system we are all different in figuring out what you're sensitive to or what helps you regulate is the key for actually doing this work for getting to a regulated state for having tools for calming down for having tools for regulation head on over to www.seedquiz.com to take the quiz for free you can take it as many times as you like for as many humans as you'd like and we will deliver results right to your inbox to get you kickstarted on this journey seedquiz.com Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Um, so does this also like play a role? I'm thinking of like their like physical development and I have mm-hmm. some kids who um, their posture is just so different and I, they tend to be kiddos for me who have sensory pro- processing challenges. How does that play a role in this? Um it's for death. So this, yeah, no, it totally does. The sensory understanding qualities of sensory input, those basic systems are what creates the ability for motor function. Um, so things like understanding where up is, which is your movement system, feeds neurologically into your postural muscles and lets you know where up is, and those muscles start to activate and work. Um, hmm. So when you have sort of challenges with understanding qualities, it's of sensory input, it's not just um, it's not just oh I don't understand it. I understand I have a body. It's there's motor actions and motor functions that come off of those systems working. So some really common ones we see are um, kids with postural based challenges um, that movement systems really not feeding into their 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 trunk muscles to say this is where up is and move. And then also if you don't feel comfortable with movement and don't understand it, you're less likely to want to move through space because it doesn't feel safe. It's sort of this uh-huh. interesting cycle of I'm unsure of myself. I don't want to go out there and move. There's I know you. There's a couple of kids that I've seen um, that are that are much younger that I, I I they're sort of the potted plant. They can sit, but they're just like sitting there. And that idea of my my muscles aren't quite strong enough for this, and I don't really feel safe in my own self to go out there and move um, through space because my movement system is not giving me good information. And then, therefore, they don't have practice and opportunities to develop those postural muscles, in addition to them sort of already being a little bit sort of at risk for that being a challenge area. Uh-huh. And does that um, also yeah. feed into kiddos who, like, kind of find a different way to move? For instance, I have, you know, seen kiddos who scoot instead of crawl, or or they crawl, but it's not that typical crawling position. Um, they might drag one leg or something. Um, does that all feed into the system as well? It, it can. I mean, kids can have, there's, we're talking, I'm talking primarily about kids with sensory issues. There can be lots of other challenges that kids have that creates that. But for the profile that we're talking about, kids that have more sensory processing based challenges. Um, so your your movement system is really important for a lot of things. It's important for posture. It's important for um, bilateral coordination, which is using both sides of your body together. 
um, also important for eye skills. But that bilateral coordination piece, you'll see kids doing all sorts of different crawling things. Um, sometimes because they're they're weak and they can't get the right muscles to work. Um, sometimes because they don't have that good coordination of both sides of their body. And also sometimes kids that don't want their head um, in different positions will stay in upright and do like the bum scooching. Um, so it's a little different for each kid. When people, when parents see things like that, I know my own nephew who's now five, um, he crawled with one leg, with one knee down and one foot. <laughs> always, always. And I remember my, my, my mother was, his grandmother was not sort of like, what is that? And it was like the only marker for him that was a little bit, it was just a little bit different. I remember talking to one of my, um, my professors or uh, instructor I had at the time and we both kind of agreed it was like a one a one point thing. It wasn't that big of a deal. So one thing, small thing, I, I do think good crawling is important, but it's important for us not to get stuck on like one little teeny thing. Um, and so it can be a sign of something. It could be just, it, it could be, I don't want to say it could be nothing, but it could be nothing. But if yeah. we're thinking so, about, so if they had a pattern. Like that, right. If it's like that one off. It, it's right. different, but if it would then be com- like combined with other things, we might look at it differently. Right, right. So we're always looking for that. Remember how we were talking about we look for the why? We're also looking for yeah. patterns. Of Got it. If a child is having an issue with one isolated thing, I mean, most of us, right? I mean, if I, we, we always joke in my in my clinic that all of us, did we all end up in this field because we all have some sensory processing thing? <laughs> or when you talk to lots of other people, you realize like everyone's got something. It's sort of how much does it matter? So for my nephew, mm-hmm. he can ride a bike. His his gait is fine. Everything else is fine. So to him, I look back and I'm like, that was a good experience for me to have to be like that that one thing wasn't necessarily indicative of like lifelong challenges or anything because it was one thing. Um, yeah. I think the thing that I know from working with, um, I work with um, kids that most of the kids that I see are between maybe um, two and eight, and then there's sort of a fading number of kids after that. But I have worked with a decent number of teenagers and adults, and they can. I think what we know from working with them, and a lot of this stuff doesn't actually always go away. Um, so it's good for us to, as, as clinicians, for, as therapists, to say, okay, we know. I'm sure there's people that nothing it became nothing, and also for some people, like the challenges that it are compounded over a long period of time. So working with adults that. Um, probably could use intervention when they were kids. Uh-huh. I don't know if that feels yeah, helpful so at all it, to include here. Yeah, no, for sure. Is it, uh, I mean, a lot of what we're doing in early childhood, we know that we form 90% of the brain by the time these kids are five and 80% of the time they're three. And so when we mm-hmm. look at intervening at all in development, that's what we're looking at is that we know right. it's so much easier and faster to make these changes right. when we do them younger than if we wait and kind of try to go back and, and reset these neural pathways. Right. So uh, it sounds like you're seeing a lot of the same stuff where maybe as a teenager, it'll take longer and it'll be harder to kind of set new patterns than if we would have worked with that child when they're one or two. Right. And we still see pretty good. The neuroplasticity research, which I'm not going to put a quote sitting here because I don't have it in front of me. I think they're really not- noting that the, the change really is possible to the lifespan, which is fantastic news. I think yeah. the main reason for me that the early intervention is so important is um, when we work with um, clients that are older, they've now been coping with whatever this has been for a very long time. Uh-huh. Um, and what that means is a lot of a, a lot of 
other challenges that exist because of that. So um, I, my cousin, who's a couple years younger than I am, um, he's in his 30s, came to our clinic. And the reason he ended up there was I was talking about my job when I first started working. And he was like, I think I have that. <laughs> and sure enough, he had some vestibular processing challenges and some planning challenges that were in the mix. Uh, and he's someone that ended up having, we see a lot of sort of more like anxiety, um, uh, not to scare anybody, but depression. Um, if you're coping with something for a long enough period, usually you're going to see other symptoms that stem from that sort of like yeah. drop, drowning in the demands. No, I, I think that's very helpful. Uh, okay. I think it's good to, I didn't understand kind of what the, what it would look like long term for people and how it could affect them longer right. term. And yeah. I think that those are, are good things to look at. I mean, we don't want parents or teachers to overanalyze every situation, but right. to really just be aware of uh, what early intervention or, you know, just even if you don't go through the early intervention system, but intervening earlier with, with kiddos in general, uh, how that can affect them for the positive, even when they're like going to kindergarten, right? Things that they might not have to, at that point, right. still be working through or coping right. with. Um, right. Yeah, I think right. that's very beneficial. Yeah, I think our, when I think of, because um, I work in a clinic and not in a school, um, school intervention is a little bit different than us, and that their primary um, way of approaching things, which is also great, is how are the children functioning right now? Because otherwise, mm-hmm. it could be like, well, maybe there's going to be an issue. We'll just do therapy for everybody. But right. we in the clinic <laughs> have the, which I totally get that. Like, I totally understand why schools are like that, because every where would, where would it end, right? right. Um, but for us, we have the luxury of when we work with families, we can really talk about and be open about like potential challenges that can, can exist. We're not 100% sure for each client. There's not like a, it's a definite. But when I think of um, younger kids, if they're, if they're having a hard time when they're younger with language or social engagement or emotional intelligence or motor skills, I, I will, in my head, rack through what does this look like as they get older. Maybe they have some planning challenges when they're younger. Planning is the foundation for executive functioning, which we all know is a huge part of learning and being able to function mm-hmm. in school. There's no way to know 100% if that can happen, but I've worked with enough older clients that have that profile that I at least have it in the mix. And I'm honest with families about, there's a, it's hard to know exactly, but it can impact things like social-emotional development significantly and learning. Um, and those kind of things. So it's, it's just good to think of those things in the mix of like, why does it matter? Um, yeah. But it doesn't mean it's the same for every single person. Yeah, thank you for that. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, 
tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you you listen to your podcasts. Uh, I know you've been doing work around eating and like oral motor. I have no idea what that looks like or how that relates to OT. Uh, can you explain that to the listeners and sure. me? Sure. So eating and mealtime participation is another occupation that we have. Um, and it's one of the few things that you can't really avoid doing, right? Like. Mm. If kids can't function at birthday parties or a certain sport, you can you can kind of get around those things, right? But eating yeah. happens multiple times a day, um, and there's a really big emotional component that comes into it for the for kids and, quite frankly, for parents. Um, a feeling yeah. like parents feel like the primary important part of their job is being able to feed their children. Um, and so we this is actually one of my sort of areas of interest in work. Uh, and it just, I think it was just based on the nature of the clients that I was, I was seeing years ago. So eating is a pretty complex skill. And I think if most of the families that I work with, if I ask them what they thought the challenge was, they usually think it's sort of the, that sort of sensory sensitivity. My body is over responsive to texture or taste or whatever, which is often true. Um, so my job, again, as an OT, why are they having the challenge? So I would look at a variety of components that come into mealtime performance. So I would look at, I would, it's usually interviewing around the sensitivity. We're not trying to ask them, right. let's torture you and see how this food feels. We're also looking <laughs> at that sort of, that sort of sensory awareness motor piece that comes in. Is your tongue moving to the side to chew? Um, can you manage different size bites? Do you even know how big the food is that goes in your mouth? Do you know when it's clear and out of your mouth? Um, is your swallowing mechanism working right? Uh, so based on what we were talking about before, we look at the mouth, but we also look at how the body and the central nervous system are processing information. That gives us a clue that might be creating some motor challenges that are going on in the mouth. So we're going to look at the sensitivity piece. We're going to look at the motor piece. We're going to look at some other things that are really important for eating, like sex swallow breed um, and postural control for things like being able to sit in the chair. Uh, and how all these things interplay together and interfere with function. Some really common things that we see with kids are really select diets, um, 
or kids that are grazers, the kids that can't eat a full meal, uh, some mm. kids with safety issues that they're overstuffing their mouth, uh, those kind of things. So the parents give us a food list, and our job is to figure out why. Why are they not eating things? And then how do we put together a treatment plan to work towards food? Amazing. Yeah. It's so pretty cool. That. It's something I never thought of. Yeah. It's, I think, it's, I think it's, it's fascinating as a clinician for a couple of reasons. One is it's a very concrete thing, um, and it's so, com- it's so complex. Um, I think the, um, my colleague and I are working on um, sort of figuring out, we're, we're writing sort of a manual on how to do more like systematic treatment for this. Because what happens is there's a lot of different modalities out there, but no one's kind of bringing them together to say, first you do this, and then you do this. Or how do you plug in what you're learning into sort of a framework? Um, because I think what we're seeing is a lot of um, a lot of people are like, oh, they're not eating. Let's practice eating. And you're like, e. Right. It's kind of like if a child's eyes aren't working the way we want them to, practice catching a ball is not going to do anything, <laughs> right? Right. So you have to think of where what what is the body doing and how is it interpreting information, and then how do we work on those in the central nervous system to give them the best foundation as possible, and to eat. And this applies to all age brackets. This is Babies up through, um, we work with young adults that are restrictive eaters. Um, I would think, yeah, it's, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. So I hope that, does that answer your question? Yeah, very much so. Okay. Um, so I have, a, I have like two more questions for you here. Sure. Just sure. An, another topic that I've just been wondering about is how, um, I, I worked with a kiddo once who had some sensory uh, challenges and was constantly sick. Um, mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's related to like postural stuff. I don't know. Like what, I, it was just something that I was really curious about. And I guess still am curious about like how could OT, like the OT game here, play a role in sickness? Okay. So or does it? Like it, it, it Again, we it could be. Um, uh-huh. So everyone, everyone cough right now. <laughs> um, that's your posture muscles will let you do that and having good like rib mobility. Um, so if you, if you do have postural challenges, it can create, I can't clear things. Um, uh-huh. and I can't get things out. Um, so other things that I've had with other um, clients that I work with, one is kids that have oral sensitivities, don't like having their teeth brushed and mm can have oral hygiene issues, which can lead to other sicknesses. Um, And the other one that I feel like this, again, there's no, there's no like evidence on this, but it's my own sort of thought process is um, I think some of these kids, their bodies are constantly under stress, um, Uh stress from overstimulation, stress from what they're being asked to do or can't do, how hard they have to work to do things that should be easy and automatic. So I think Uh sometimes their bodies are just under sort of a constant stress. And we know as adults, when we're stressed, that's when you get sick. Yeah. Those are some, like, basic principles. Obviously, there's lots of other things that make kids sick, right? Um, but yeah, those are some sure. of the ones that I, I often think about um, when it happens. Also, have plenty of kids that don't get sick. So it's not a it's not always right. a 100%. Sure fire. Right. But if those are things, then not clearing the... Um, not clearing things when they're sick, I feel like, is one that I've had with a couple of kids that have some pretty big postural um, challenges. So that's mm-hmm. an important one to be thinking about in terms of their health and wellness. Yeah. So 
so a good point, Alyssa. I know it's not, I, it's OT, I feel like the whole, like, does OT do this? You're like, maybe. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> that's why you're one of, one of right. my first people I turn to. Cause I'm like, eh, yeah. this could be an OT yeah. thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it, and I'm a fellow why asker. So, right. Yeah. Why? Like, why? We why? go back and, and think, forth on the why. <laughs> right. And sometimes I think even um, families that I work with, um, either at school or at my clinic, sometimes it's not an OT thing. And I think one of the things that we, I know, I always feel like is important is being informed on types of other types of practitioners that it might be <laughs> at their mm-hmm. alley of that's not me, but I know where I kind of know what you're looking for because um, I want to make sure we're doing best practices with. Could I figure it out? Or, hey, this other person's already an expert in that. Um, or if kids aren't eating, that pulling in other team members like a dietitian um, to help support sort of um, sort of multi, yeah. uh, a multidisciplinary approach for some of these more for these bigger challenges. The food one's a big one. Um, a lot of clients that we work with have significant social-emotional challenges that are either related to their, um, their sensory processing challenges and those challenges, but also a lot of kids that have attachment um, and trauma histories. Um, so the idea of those aren't things that we would necessarily, we, we treat them informed of what their challenges are. We want to make sure we're pulling other team members. Um, so, but sometimes because we're jack of all trades, people are like, oh, that's OT. Be like, it's OT plus, <laughs> plus other people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and I think what you like highlighted here is that it affects so many other different areas of development that it often could be multifaceted. Uh, I've worked with kiddos who I had had a family who had a a baby who was having feeding issues and the feeding team consisted of the pediatrician, uh, a lactation consultant, an SLP, and an OT. And everybody Mm -hmm. kind of came together to look at how are all of our disciplinaries feeding into this. Um, And it's it's amazing how, how much it pairs together. And, you know, I do work in emotional development and emotional development with the sensory development and language are all tied together. Um, so it's never just, oh, we just have a sensory issue. It's okay, now how is that feeding into other things? And how do we then best support this kid in in all areas of development? Right, right. Yeah. Awesome. I well, I guess from here, we just threw a bunch of information at at families, uh, <laughs> I don't want people leaving like, oh no, uh, my kid needs all the things. Uh, what could parents do next? I guess, where do parents turn, even if they have questions or they want to check out more resources um, on OT specific things? Or if they did notice, like, yeah, every single morning putting clothes on my kid is the biggest challenge ever and it's coupled with X, Y, and Z, all of these other things that are happening. Uh, and they had any concerns, where would they look next to see, to kind of look into this further? Right. So um, a couple of things. One is there's some great books out there. Um, the Out of Sync Child is sort of a classic um, book that was written by Carol Kranowitz, who's an OT. So that's a great one. Um, the other one that I really like is Sensory Smart Parenting. And that author is Lindsay Beal. And that one was co-written with... Um, a parent whose child that therapist treated, which I thought was parts of it are, which I thought was kind of neat. It's got some parent perspective mm-hmm. in it, which was really nice. So those could be helpful if you just kind of want to learn more. Or you're thinking, hmm, is this my kid? Um, so those are good um, ways of collecting some information. The clinic I work at is located in Newton, Massachusetts. Um, we're called OTA the Kumar Center. Um, it's formerly OTA Watertown up until about five years ago. 
and we have a couple resources on our, um, like how do I know that are on our website. We also do really detailed intakes with families um, if they're considering intervention. So what that is, is you go to our website and it says, I want to look to initiate services. You fill out some paperwork. I've actually had some families, if they're thinking about if a sibling has a challenge, be like, you could just go in and fill out the paperwork. And if you decide, I don't want to send this thing, you don't have to send it in. But it's a checklist to get you thinking about some of the things that you might be seeing with your child. Um, uh-huh. And then if you decide that you want to send it in, you get a phone call um, free of charge with one of our fabulous intake therapists. Um, so that could be a person that you could ask questions to before you decide to do anything. Uh, uh-huh. So that can be a really good resource. Um, but so I, the, the filling out the checklist and thinking, is there enough stuff on here for me to think I want to move forward or is it just more of an FYI um, kind of thing? Those can be some really um, some really easy resources. Uh, the one thing I caution about if you do any web searches is sensory processing disorder is very common with autism. They are not, they don't go together all the time. So you can have autism and not have sensory processing issues. You can have sensory processing issues and not have autism. So I always, um, the parents know when they're reading, it's very hard not to go down that sort of rabbit hole of, oh my gosh, you can have them explained to the exclusive from uh, other diagnostics. So please, when you read that, just try to separate that out in your head when you're thinking about your own, uh, your own child. Uh, we don't do intervention differently for different diagnostic sensory processing work and sensory processing work. Um, so, so those are some potential okay. resources. And if it felt helpful, um, if talking more about activities or anything comes out of feedback, I would be happy to do another podcast to um, to share more information if that felt like it would be uh, that would be helpful. Awesome. Uh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I will link to those books and to your center in the show notes so that anyone who's like driving or has a sleeping child in their arms right now and can't right, yeah. that down. Uh, <laughs> what did she say? And can go back and find it. Uh, awesome. Lori, thank you so much. You are amazing. And I feel like I could sit and chat with and learn from you all day. Uh, oh, thanks so thanks much for Alyssa. hanging out with us today. Thanks for hanging out with me. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not 
my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. 